Good morning. Um, you can go ahead and open your Bible to Galatians. We're going to get there. I uh, want to give you your questions for the morning. I'm going to try to get in the habit of doing that. And uh, one of the questions you're going to get every Sunday, you'll get every time, and that's this first question. What word or phrase stands out as relevant to your life? Okay, you can just jot that one down somewhere, and every Sunday when you come, you can know that I'm going to ask you that question. What word or phrase stands out as relevant in your life today and what's shared? Here's the second question. What has been your assessment of the person you were before you met Christ? What has been your assessment of the person you were before you met Christ? All right, now, we might answer that question somewhere in here a little bit. What has been your assessment of the person you were before you met Christ? And then here's the third one. What does resurrection life look like to you? What does resurrection life look like to you? Okay. What does resurrection life look like to you? All right. One of the statements I made last week is there are at least eight different ways in Galatians, eight different ways that Paul makes the case for the grace of Christ over against the law, including declarations, illustrations, examples, where he makes the case. He's making the case for the grace of Christ in contrast to the law of Moses. That's what these guys were trying to get these believers to do is come back under the law, come back under Judaism, make Christ part of it maybe, but still observe the law, still observe the traditions. And Paul makes the case that that's not acceptable. And so he did it at least eight different ways in Galatians through a lot of different means. The first way is he declares it. He just throws it down there. All right. Look with me in Galatians chapter two, verse 11. He says, but when Peter came to Antioch and we don't have a record in acts of this event, all right? We don't, I've tried to find it, but there's no real record that says, well, this was when Peter was in Acts and this was when Paul confronted him. But somewhere in the process, after Peter had been to the Gentiles and seen the glory of God fall on them, after he had seen the Spirit of God inhabit them and fall on them, just like he did at Jerusalem, after the Jerusalem Convention, where the leaders in Jerusalem had determined you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to keep the law in order to follow Jesus. Even after those events, 
Peter goes to Antioch. And while he's at Antioch, he, well, I'm looking for the word, he interacts with the Gentiles. Hey, man, all is good. God's revealed himself to the Jew. He's revealed himself to the Gentile. We're brothers in Christ. We eat together. We fellowship together. We share together. But then something happened. Some men came in of that Jewish persuasion, and Peter then shunned the Gentiles to not sit with them anymore, to not eat with them. And Paul addresses that. Look here what he says. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, James being the leader in Jerusalem, for prior coming to certain men from from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision the approval of men. Peter was scared to death. They were going to condemn him. They weren't going to like him for eating with the Gentiles. And so rather than stick with that conviction, he backed away from them, compromised, and Paul calls him on it under no uncertain terms. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? And then he gets real straightforward. He says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners, sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul comes out and just absolutely lays it down. The authority from Christ. This Peter's the big shot, okay? He was the guy that, you know, went to bat. He's one of the big apostles. Here's G, here's Peter. He's never quote unquote. I mean, here's Paul. He wasn't one of the 12. And so now because of the revelation that Paul had of Christ, it empowered him to make a clear declaration challenging Peter. He said, buddy, you are wrong. What you're doing is not what God has proposed. You're coming in here, you're eating with the Gentiles until the Jewish persuasion comes, and then you're setting away from that, trying to get the Gentiles to live like the Jews when you yourself said you don't even going to live like the Jews, and now here you are. And you have to understand the weight of that, the strength of that, 
the courage it took for Paul to stand up and challenge him right in the middle of all these other men and said, this is not right. This is not what God's put out there. So the first thing he did, one of the first ways that he mentions here in Galatians is he just does so by declaration. He just throws it down there. No man shall be justified by the works of the law, period, end of sentence, end of paragraph, that's it. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no stipulations for that. There's no addendum to that. It is the final, ultimate separation. Paul is declaring to this leader who really never caught it. That's hard to imagine. We, we elevate Peter so much sometimes. We, we've, he never really caught it. And Paul just declares it just bold-faced right to him. So the first thing he does is he declares it. The second thing he does in making that distinction between the law, following the law and the grace of Christ, he shows that in the death of Christ, the law was fulfilled. Now, this is important. You're going to, I hope you see this. I hope you catch this. By showing that death in Christ fulfills the law. Look in chapter 2, verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law. You know one of the purposes of the law? So that you would die. And he said, through the law, I died to the law. We'll see that in a minute. And so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Okay? Now, let me show you something. There are two ways to fulfill the law. Okay? There is two ways to fulfill what the law demands. The first one is to live without sin, to never sin in thought, in word, in deed, in action, in emotion. No way. If you can do that, you can fulfill the law. But the problem is, see, James says in chapter 2, verse 10, if you offend in one point, you are guilty of the whole thing. So maybe that's not an option. Two ways. First way is never sin. Jesus did that. He fulfilled the law in that he never sinned. He was completely without sin. He kept it in deed. He kept it in thought. He kept it in action. He fulfilled it by his life in every aspect. But no one else has ever done that. All right? But there's another way to fulfill the law. Any idea what that is? Die. If you die, you no longer have to keep the law. Anybody up for that? If you die, 
The law must carry with it a judgment. There must be a penalty for not living up to the law. Otherwise, it's just a suggestion. It's not law. And we're experiencing that in our culture today. We're trying to have laws without the consequence. Therefore, it ain't a law. It's just a suggestion. And so we're making things that are illegal, lawful, in order to get rid of the consequence. But for the law to be law, there has to be a judgment. There has to be a penalty. Otherwise, it's just a suggestion. Now, the penalty for breaking the law of Moses was death. In Leviticus chapter 20, over and over and over again, he says, do this, you die. Do this, stone them. Do this, kill them. Do this, break the law, you die. Over and over again, it says that. Eight of the Ten Commandments were punishable by death if you broke them. I mean, it's catching you ever which way you can. There are 26 instances in the Old Testament of death penalty being required when you break the law. It was ultimately no escape from it. Romans, even the New Testament, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Listen, the wages of sin is not being unable to find a parking spot. The wages of sin is not your kids getting sick. The wages of sin is not you having a bad day. The wages of sin is not making a bills every month. The wages of sin, the penalty for breaking the law is death. Judgment demands an answer. Who will pay the price? So in order to fulfill the law, I have two choice, two choices. I can keep the law without ever breaking it at any point, or I can die. Now, since Jesus had no sin of his own to die for, he qualified to be the spotless lamb of God who came to earth to pay for the sins of others. In John 1, 29 and 36, when John the Baptist saw him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Why would he qualify as the Lamb of God? He qualified as the Lamb of God because he had no sin. He was spotless. He had never broken the law, not in thought, not in word, not in deed, not in action. He was without sin. And they called him, therefore, the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God. Now, therefore, he didn't have any sin to die for. But he died anyway. And when he died, God identified my death with him. Who's going to pay the price? There would never have been anybody that could pay the price. Why? Because we all had sin. 
I could die for my sin, but I couldn't die for your sin because I had sin. I had to die for my sin. You had to die for your sin. There was no one out there who would say, I don't have any sin. I'll die for all of your sins except Jesus. And he comes on the scene and God says, this is the one I planned. This is the one I've looked for. This is the one I sent. He is the spotless lamb of God without blemish. He has no sin to die for. Therefore, he can be the one to die for all of you that have sin. Okay? That's the good news. Because Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the spotless lamb, he could not only be the lamb of God for all of us, but because he fulfilled the requirements of the spotless lamb, he rose from the grave, validating that that fulfilled the requirements of God. He didn't have to be there forever. He was there for a purpose, but he validated that God says, this is an acceptable sacrifice because he had no sin of his own. Now, we have the luxury of other letters that will help clarify each of Paul's letters, okay? So I want you to see this in Romans chapter 6. Turn over there with me. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into his death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so would we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now watch. Here's the picture. Here's Jesus. No sin. What's the penalty of, de- of sin? Death. Here I am. I can't pay the price for the penalty of sin without dying. But I have to pay. It has to be paid. God took all of my sin, all of my rebellion, all of my immorality, all of my worry, all of my anxiety, and he put it on Jesus and says, Here's the payment for all of your sin. Okay? Here's the payment right here. Now, let me ask you this. What does that leave over here? What does that leave? It leaves me 
spotless. And since Jesus was spotless, paid the price for other sins, God accepts that sacrifice and raises him from the dead. Now here I am, I'm spotless. I die in identification with Christ. Christ says, Jesus died, you died. And I raise him from the dead, and in raising him, I raise you. Because you are spotless. You don't have anything to owe. You don't have anything to pay. Since I was identified with Christ in his death, I can identify with Christ in his resurrection. You see, a dead man is under no obligation to keep the law. Look in Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has no jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. It's no longer relevant. Now let me ask you the question I asked you a while ago. What is your assessment of your life? What has been your assessment of the person you were before you met Christ? Some of us might say, nah, wasn't so bad. You know, I, I, I went to church, I did all that, and, and it just didn't take a lot for Jesus to save me. I was a pretty good Joe. Or we might say, man, I was a wretch. I was in rebellion. I was disobedient. Well, let me tell you what God's assessment of your life before you met Christ was kill it. That was it. That's the only thing I can do for it is kill it. It has to pay the price. Die. It doesn't matter where you were a good little junior boy or girl. It doesn't matter where you were an alcoholic or in the mafia. It makes no difference whatsoever. One sin guilty of the whole thing. And in order for me to fulfill that, I must die. And in Christ, I died. But because I died and Jesus made that payment, I am spotless and he can raise me from the grave as a new person, no longer to live to the law, but to live to God. And if my assessment of who I was before I met Christ is anything less than I deserve to die, I'm not understanding God's attitude in his heart. Because as long as I think there was something worthy there, as long as I think there was something that that God could use there, I'm not going to understand grace. I have to understand that God's assessment of who I was was judgment because I had broken the law and I had to die. And Christ died for that. And that freed me from having to keep the law, not because I didn't like the law, but because I had fulfilled the law. I did what the law demanded. 
I died. But I rose again because the law was fulfilled in what God did. It's real simple. Old me, obligated to the law, I died in Christ. New me, new creation, resurrected with Christ. And there is nothing about the new me inwardly that looks anything like the old me. Because I'm a new person in Christ. Listen, Paul didn't just wake up one morning and say, the law, let's don't fool with that anymore. He didn't just wake up and say, the law doesn't have any purpose. Let's just discard it and go on and do whatever we want to do. He was able to make the decisions and see the things that he saw because he had had a revelation of Christ. Look what he says. In chapter 1, verse 12, he didn't say, I didn't, he says, I received, for I neither received this revelation from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation, not from Jesus Christ, but a revelation of Jesus Christ. The lights came on to who Jesus was. The lights came on to what God had accomplished in Christ. The revelation was made real that Christ came and fulfilled the law. And I died with him. And because I now was spotless, I could rise from the grave and no longer have to serve the law. I serve Christ because the law has been fulfilled in me because of what Christ has done. He didn't just discard it. He understood it had been fulfilled. So there's no use keeping something that's been fulfilled. There's no use trying to continue to obey something that's already been fulfilled, and it had been fulfilled in Christ. This is why Paul could pray again in another letter in Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. My heart was enlightened. I had a revelation of Jesus Christ, and it absolutely changed my life from seeing the law as something I have to obey in order to be right with God. And the revelation of Christ changed all that. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Not keep the law, believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He saw the revelation of Christ fulfilling the law, not nullifying the law. And because I was identified with Christ, what God did in Christ brought that fulfillment to me. And I'm no longer obligated to keep the law. We see glimpses of his revelation all throughout his letter. He says the law served a purpose, but that purpose is now completed in Christ. 
And since God identifies us in Christ, it is fulfilled in us as well. We died. And in that death, that fulfilled the law. The love of God, he sees. The love of God is a much better constrainer of hearts and behavior than the law ever was. I want you to listen to that again. Because, boy, we've got this thing in our head of his love for us, but we don't have it in the awareness of what we walk in. The love of God is a much better constrainer of hearts and behavior than the law ever was. The awareness of God's love for me constrains me. What keeps me from doing this? The awareness of his love. The awareness of all that he did. The awareness of the price that he paid. We see this in this revelation. Christ has the power to keep me from sinning. Oh, man, I don't know. Christ in me is the power to keep me from sinning. Christ in me is not just the answer to my past sin. Christ in me is not just the answer to my future sin. Christ in me is the answer to the choices that I make today, and there is nothing in me that can make me sin because that power has been broken in Christ, something the law could never do. The law could just insist. The law could just demand. The law could bring judgment. The law could bring punishment, but it could never give you power to keep it. And we struggle with that. Oh, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to be this. I've got to be this. And we're bankrupt when it comes to finding the power to do it all. Because we've made it law in our life. And we think it's self-effort. And it's self-discipline. And it's us just doing it on our own grit and by gum. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then we don't do it. And then we experience that condemnation and that guilt and that shame for it. Christ in me has the power to keep me from sinning. Would you just tell yourself that? Christ in me has the power to keep me from sinning. Well, everybody's got a sin. Well, if you want to, go ahead. You don't have to. We also see this in this revelation. We are no longer under the judgment of law, but we are under the favor of God. You really believe that? You believe there's nothing you did to come under God's favor? Do you believe there's nothing you can do to get out of God's favor? Because God's favor was not acquired through merit. It was acquired through Christ. See, God's favor is just grace. Grace. It's just God's grace. So he comes and he reveals to us that the law has been fulfilled. And because it's been fulfilled in Christ and in me, I no longer have to serve the law. 
I no longer have to be obligated to it. All right, I got another one, but I don't think we're going to finish it. All right, let me ask you questions. What did you, what phrase or word did you hear today? Or what question do you have about what you heard today? What phrase or word stands out as relevant to your life today? I'll tell you something. Well, let me answer that. For me, I mean, it, it, it just blew my doors off to understand the reality that I didn't get free from the law just because Paul says we're not under the law anymore. I got free from the law because Jesus fulfilled the law in me. And I am as spotless as Jesus was because I am spotless with his spotlessness. That makes sense? I am as right with God as Jesus was because I am right with his rightness. Now, how often do I tell myself that? Not because of what I've done or haven't done. We'll get into this more next week. What word or phrase stands out as relevant to your life? Anything? Joni said, wait. Joni told me to wait, so I'm going to wait. To to translate it into today's term, I I hear Paul saying, we cannot use the phrases, I've always done it that way. We can't use the phrase, well, I was raised that way. I mean, Paul's saying he was raised that way. Peter was raised that way. But that's... That's dead. So we can't use the phrase, I've always been that way. I've always been late. Because, you know, I can't use that. I have to go to Christ and say, what am I supposed to do today? I can't say, I've always been shy. I can't. I can't witness. We, we can't. So that, that's kind of the phrase. And now I can't say today to make it real. I can't. Remain at the grave mourning. That's very real to me. I can't be there indefinitely because I know where my mother is. I, it's almost an affront to God to remain mourning mm-hmm. for the rest of my life. He mm-hmm. would not be happy. And I hear my mother saying, Really, Laura? Really? <laughs> really? That's what I, so that's a phrase. You can't, we can't use those phrases. I was all, I was just raised that way. That's very good. There's another phrase we can't use. Know what it is? That's just the way I am. See, we lose our anger. That's just the way I am. We get tacky with people. Well, that's just the way I am. And it is interesting that that's just the way I am is always associated with sin. Well, it's just the way I am. I'm just a jerk. Well, it's just the way I am. If we're going to say that, we need to say it every time we obey God. Well, that's the way I am. That's the way I am. Why wouldn't I obey God? That's the way I am. That's the way he's made me. That's how I am, is I am right with God. Do you know what? So, um, 
just as Jesus died and lived again, so do I. That's what I wrote down. Oh, man. Um, that's what stood out to me today. God is just. He's fair. Always fair. Always. So if the law required me to die, and so I had to die with Jesus, then it's only fair that I also get to live just as Jesus did. That's right. And Jesus still bore those scars. That's okay. I'll take all the scars you want to give me if I get to live again and be free. That's good. That's good. All right. Anyone else? Alex? Come on, buddy. Um, So this part was in Romans, um, and it's just the translation in which I read it. Um, It was Romans 6, uh, I guess start with uh, 6, verse verse 6. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. Um, Just that phrase, lose its power. If we come to the realization of what that truly means, no more fear, no more anxiety, even in death. I mean, he's so good. And to come in that realization of what that truly means and apply it, that's so much healing. Mm-hmm. What? That's good. Nothing. It's just whatever the Lord brings is manna. It's just food. Good. See, our self-talk kills us. Our self-talk is what kills us. We say, nobody cares, nobody likes me, nobody knows. And then we sing, your loving kindness is everlasting. We sing, your presence is with me always. That's what we need to be saying ourselves is the truth instead of the things that we feel. Paul? Okay. The word of. <laughs> when you... When you were reading Galatians 1.12, I was still in Romans. And so I thought, has he got that right? <laughs> I flipped back over there. <laughs> I figured you probably did. I didn't think it was a mistake. And, and sure enough. And so I think I've always kind of been under the impression that Paul was referencing getting knocked off the horse, getting called to the Gentiles, all of that, this revelation from Jesus Christ. And all that was from Christ. Right. And the revelation of Christ was so significant and is significant for all of us. Every time we'll go to him, he wants to show us him. Mm -hmm. Um, We got to be careful not to come to him with just our stuff, but just come to him for him and see him and let that heal us from being drawn to law. Mm -hmm. That really Mm -hmm. was pretty profound. And see, this is this, this thing, the idea is you can get to Clyde back there. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's on his way to Damascus to get take care of Christians. Jesus shows up and says to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you remember what Paul asked? Who are you? Well, who are you? And I think God, God's got a sense of humor. Uh, you're fixing to find out who I am, okay? I'm going to reveal to you who this is in a way that has never been revealed to anybody else but the angels. And he began then to see who Jesus was and what he had done. And that's when he prays, I want you 
your heart to be enlightened so that you can see all these riches that I saw in Jesus that so surpass anything you've got here. You know, I, I was particularly taken in this occasion by the reference to dissembling or hypocrisy as variously rendered. And struck too close to home, actually. <laughs> uh, and perhaps others could identify with this. What Paul pointed out about Peter was a, a phrase that was commonly understood in that time. You know, have any of you ever seen on television's theatrical thing where you got these masks from the old Greek theater, the smiling face and the frowning face? That's what we get our word hypocrisy from. Mm-hmm. Hippocrates, it's a play actor. That's right. He was basically saying in very graphic terms, which applies too often, I think, in the present, that when you take this up, whether it's the law, Jewish the law given to Moses, or any kind of legal code you've contrived, even it's just a personal set of lists, I do this, and somehow I'm better for this or worse for that or whatever. Uh, you're putting on one of those ridiculous masks, putting on a little act. Maybe you're convincing yourself. I know I did that a lot to myself. And maybe you're convincing some other people, but you're not being who you are in Christ. You're dead or you're not dead. You're dead in Christ or not in Christ. And uh, personally, I'm, I'm rather tired of acting. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I found it interesting that he called him out. You're just an actor. A, a poor little play actor running across the stage, yeah. Peter. That took some guts. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, did. It took some courage. All right. Anyone else? What was the third question? What does resurrection life look like? Oh, yeah, take it back over there. Thank you. They've been holding back. Um, God has been talking to me about justice for a while um, and how, you know, us as humans and in our flesh, we kind of feel like we need that. Like justice has to be served for what, you know, somebody did. And he showed it to me in three different ways and how the first way is in like society, how he committed a crime and he has to serve justice. We have to see justice for that. Or when someone personally does us wrong, we want to see justice for that. Mm. Or, and then the third way was against ourselves. I did this wrong and I have, you know, I have to serve the justice for that. And, um, God was just showing me that he doesn't need that. He doesn't need to see justice done. Um, And today I just felt like, you know, that kind of closed it out for me because we're spotless because of him. Mm -hmm. That's right. And here's the interesting thing, too. The people that do that to us, they are spotless, too. And they don't know it. They just don't know it yet. The good news hadn't become good news yet all right what does resurrection life look like the right answer is i don't know yet ask the father what does it look like what would it look like father if i really believe i died and you raised me a brand new person i'm telling you I mentioned this before. I, I I just think it's a great idea that, you know, whenever I met the Lord, I found out what my real name was and what I had been going by up until that time. I quit going by 
and started going by what my birth name was. I can't tell you what that did to me and helped me understand that guy's dead. So maybe we ought to start changing names when you meet the Lord. I don't know, you know. It just makes a difference to understand that identity, that person, that way of living, that way of thinking, that way of acting is dead. I don't have to resurrect that. Can if I want to, but I don't have to. All right? All right. Father, let all this sink into our heart. You said we were free. Here we are. This is why. We are free from the law, free from sin and death, free from anything that keeps us from walking with you. So, Father, just let that burn that in our soul of what you've done for us. Our passion for you becomes pure. and Our heart for you becomes intense. We just love you and bless you for all that you did. Give us a revelation of who you are, that you might be honored in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.